You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. I am Andrew Shea. Glad you're here, whether you're inside, outside, or on the live stream. It was so nice. My wife was here for the first time in like three weeks. I understand it's like a homecoming for some of you because you've been knocked out of commission or you're trying to protect yourself, but uh, just grateful for those of you who are here and even if you're online for making the effort to gather with us digitally. Uh, like Katie said on the announcement, we're launching a new ministry this Sunday and it's called Foster the City. And we've got Ryan McDonald here, who's a representative of the organization. Would you welcome him as he comes up here? Ryan's going to share with us a bit about Foster the City. And we did preview this ministry before the new year. We said, hey, this is a little bit of what it's like. Maybe you forget what that announcement entailed. Maybe you weren't here for it. Well, this is the official launch. So, uh, Ryan, would you let us know what is Foster the City as an organization? Yeah. Good morning, Branches. So great to be with you guys this morning. And um, yeah, Foster the City is a coalition of 182 churches, uh, mostly in California, that are committed to finding a home for every child in the foster care system. And our vision is that there would be a church for every child. And we go about that kind of thinking in three primary categories. The first category is kind of demystifying and giving gospel language to talk about what foster parenting is. Whenever I tell people I'm a foster parent, whether it's on the playground with my kids or whatever, they kind of look at me like I'm this strange creature. I'm either like a freak or a saint. It goes either way, depending on the person. Yeah. But what we want to do is just show that foster care is something we feel that, that God has called us into as a church. And there are so many tools and resources to help us along the way and to just kind of learn what that's about. Secondly, is we want to raise up a army of support friends to come around fostering families. You know, Barna Research Group a couple of years ago did this survey and they found out that only 50% of foster parents make it out of their first year. That's crazy. You think about, you know, three to six months of training and classes and prayer and preparation and only 50% are actually sustaining in that. Mm -hmm. And so we started to ask the question why, and part of the reason was they felt unsupported. They didn't have the structure of support to carry the responsibility of fostering. And so we want to raise up a team of four support friends, singles or retirees or young marries, anyone who wants to come around this family and pray for that child, provide practical support like meals and child care to really ensure that family can, can thrive. And lastly, we want to envision the whole church to do foster care together. You know, when I bring my foster kids to church, I am so happy that there are select families that rush to meet my foster kids. They're like elbowing people to get to my foster kids, to, to hold my one-year-old, to, to give a coloring book to my four-year-old. And what they're communicating with their actions is you belong here and we're glad you're here. And that's the message the church should be sending to foster children when we have the privilege of worshiping alongside them on a Sunday. You belong here and we're glad you're here. And when a whole community can wrap this child, it is powerful. It is powerful to change their life because when these kids are removed, they don't just lose their mom or their dad or their grandma. They lose their aunties and their uncles. They lose the kids they used to play with down the street. 
They lose their favorite coach, their favorite teacher. Everything's gone. And so we believe that God's called the church to be that surrogate family to wrap around them and really show them the love of Christ as a community. Right? I mean, come on. Can we give it up for what Ryan's advocating for? I know this is the heart of this church community that's been formed over the last decade. And to me, Ryan is like a hero uh, because uh, he's not just somebody who's working for this organization. His wife and he are invested. Like you said, you are foster parents. How has fostering children changed you in your faith journey? Yeah. Fostering has completely uh, changed me and my wife. Um, When you step into foster care, you step into a world of uncertainty. And there's really only two ways forward, failure or trust in Jesus. And I just find in my life, with, with all the comforts that I have and how easy my life has been, I'm not really put in a place where I have to trust Jesus. Hmm. I'm not really walking by faith. I can get by on what I've learned about how to function in church and how to do Western Christianity. But when you become a foster parent, you are dependent on God. And I have been driven to surrender to Christ in ways that I didn't realize I hadn't surrendered yet. And the beauty of that surrender is always joy. Mm. We know that as as a church community, that we struggle. We struggle to give God what he wants, what he calls us to. We struggle, we struggle, we struggle. And then when we do, joy. And that's what I've experienced. Some of the greatest moments of joy have been around some of the nine children that my wife and I have been a part of their story in foster care. And silly moments around the dining room table or chaos after bath time or... There, there is a lot of difficulty and hardship, but there's so much joy because Christ is with these kids. And as Andrew's going to talk about today, when you welcome these amazing, made-in-God's-image children into your home, you're welcoming Christ into your home in, in a profound way. And so it has, it has reinforced that paradigm that I know up here, but I struggle to get it in here, that when we surrender to God, the result is joy. And that's what he has for his people, more joy and abundant joy. And so that has transformed me. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, how is Foster the City, how are you seeing this organization really impact the foster system? And how effectively is it bringing churches together to really change things? Yeah. I mean, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, what's, what, we're, what we're doing is I'm up here kind of waving a flag saying, hey, church, there are 3,000 children in foster care in Orange County. 3,000. I mean, those are just as beautiful as your children. I mean, kids who are in need of a home that's not just going to love on the children, but it's going to pray and trust for the restoration of the whole family. Because our gospel is not just powerful enough to place a lonely child in a family. It is powerful enough to restore a family that's broken. And that's where foster care is different than adoption. It's ultimately about restoring this broken family in faith and trust. And then when there is a need for permanency to welcoming that kid into your forever family. And so the first thing we're doing is just just waving the flag saying, hey, these kids are unseen. They're hidden in the shadows of our society. And we're actually just bringing them to light saying, hey, who is going to step up to love these children that God loves so much? But the cool thing is you're doing that in partnership with other churches. The interest meeting that we'll talk about in a second, there's people from Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa that will be there, a partner church. And Canopy, that's a partner church. And Watermark in Costa Mesa. All these churches that you're locking arms with and together saying, hey, what can we do together? And, and that's the strength of the coalition. 
coalition as we report our data each year and we we show that, hey, there's 413 foster families that have started because of this ministry. That's not foster the city. That's the churches. The churches raised up those foster families. The churches wrapped them with the support friends. And that's, that's what's so beautiful. And you're saying the retention of foster parents year after year through foster the city has increased greatly too, right? Yeah. Instead of 50% quitting after the first year, what's the retention now? Uh, we last checked it in 2020 and um, 93% of our parents made it up past the first year instead of 50%. So that, that's a testament to what God is doing in the church yes. and also a testament to that supportive community that's going to come around these individuals. Totally. So when we're talking about a church for every single one of these children, that's going to take a lot of people, not just families, but churches linking together, individuals yeah. from those churches being the supportive community. What does it look like for us? I mean, if, if God is really knocking on the door of hearts in this room, what does it look like for each of us to take a next step? Yeah. I think the first thing is for each person in here to pray, is God calling me to become a foster parent? Now, if you're 14 years old, let me just tell you the answer is no right away. So it's not always a yes. Yeah. But um, there's tons of different type of foster care. There is this sacred group of about 30 grandmas in Orange County, and you'd never know about them. But they take kids who have a positive toxology report at birth, and they love them, they hold them, they nurse them back to health, and then they hand them over to a fostering family to take it from there. there there's all types of places for people to foster in different types of foster care. And so I would just ask that you would just, uh, as a family, as an individual, just ask the question, God, are you calling me to foster? And be willing to explore and learn more about what that actually looks like. Second is we need an army of support friends. For those individuals and those couples who are going to say we're going to foster, to wrap them with a support friend team to provide meals and child care and prayer. And those are the two kind of primary ways uh, to get involved in kind of making an impact. And if they're interested in finding out more about that, we have an informational meeting. It's not this Saturday. It's, it's the following, following Saturday. Saturday. Yes. And <laughs> some of our partner churches will be there as well. Yeah. Food is provided. Yep. And child care is provided. So there's absolutely no reason anyone in here can't go. All right, we're removing the obstacles. I'd love to see a massive representation from the branches community as we all pray into this, as we all explore the responsibility that Christ is going to be calling us into. Yeah. But can we thank Ryan? He's going to be out on the patio this morning uh, answering your questions. There's these cards outside. So you can fill these out, and we're going to make sure that you get all that information about that informational meeting that's coming up. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 18. And yes, this message will dovetail very nicely into the topic of our conversation this morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know Matthew 18 started out with Jesus using a child as the example of greatness. He said, we're supposed to change and become like a little child. Uh, we're to become like one who's seeking no validation, who has no authority, no position. That's not where greatness is going to be found. It's in the example of this child. And I think even more importantly, as we consider this ministry... Jesus said, as Ryan reminded us, that to welcome one of these little ones in his name was to welcome his very presence. So this theme of, of the little ones, of children, it's going to continue on into verse 6 of Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to hear what is basically one of the most serious condemnations of Jesus in the entire Gospels. We're going to read that this morning. 
And let me tell you, he pulls no punches. It's very serious. It's very weighty. You know, as I was preparing this message, this is what happens when you go through a book of the Bible. You know, we got to this passage. I say, man, is there a way I can tell, you know, a funny story? I can let off some steam along the way. No, there's no opening for it. I mean, it just is a very serious and heavy warning that Jesus is going to give to us alongside, though, a very impassioned appeal. And I think what we're going to find on the other side of our study this morning, we're going to be discovering the matters of this life that matter most to God. All right, let's read. It's going to be in verse 6, Matthew chapter 18. The verses will also be on the screens. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and one of the ushers will give one to you as we go along in our study this morning. Verse 6, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish." Let's pause there this morning. So as I mentioned, this is a continued focus that Jesus has on these little ones. And it contains a very severe warning. It contains an appeal. But before we get into the specifics of that, I think we have to define who is Jesus talking about? Who are these little ones? We know that from our study at the beginning of Matthew 18, that Jesus brought up a child. Most think it was a child seven years old or younger. And set them in the middle of the disciples and said, this is the vision of what greatness is in the kingdom. So I think a question is, is he just talking about kids then in this passage? Or is he talking about those disciples who take up this call to humility, who embody the greatness of the kingdom as they go about this lowly and humble position in life? Is that who he's referring to in this passage? And I think there's no reason to doubt that Jesus is speaking about both groups. He's saying, sure, there are going to be people who adopt a more vulnerable place in society because they've taken the lower status. They've taken that posture of humility as my disciples. And and all these teachings apply to them. But, I mean, who is more vulnerable? I mean, who's in a more lowly and humble state than children? So certainly, I'm inclined to think this teaching also applies to them. Now, the error related to them, Jesus speaks of in verse 6. He says, it is to cause one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. Literally, it means to like trap them with a snare, like a hunter's trap. Essentially, these vulnerable ones are being led off the path of God by another individual. Astonishingly, Jesus says, it's better for the person who's setting those traps and causing those little ones to stumble It's better for them to have a millstone tied to their neck. That is this grinding stone in the ancient world that would be pulled by a donkey. 
and they would use it, this heavy stone, to actually grind up grain. He says it's better for that person to have this giant stone tied to their neck and for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to face the fate that awaits them, which is mentioned a few verses later as eternal fire. Now, this is a striking image. I don't know if you've ever been diving deep into water and you felt that feeling of losing your breath and the anxiety that creeps in. Imagine an impossible weight being tied to your neck and you're being pulled further and further beneath the surface into that darkness. That's the image that Jesus is trying to convey to us, and it's preferable. So this is a cursed state. That's what Jesus says in verse 7. He goes, whoa, whoa, you know, this is cursed. This is awful. This is regretful. And he says, first of all, woe to the world. Woe to the world because this is a place where things like this happen. This is a place where people are caused to stumble. You know, the world is a minefield of, of, of damage and trauma and lies and falsehood and sin. You know, anyone who says, like, God's got your back and you're never going to go through hard things in this world, look, God has your back, but he never told you you wouldn't go through hard things. You know, you can say, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God and I'm a son or a daughter of the king. That may be true, but in this world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be things that happen to you that cause you to stumble, that confuse you, that lead you to places of doubt. Woe to this world. But he says, woe especially to the channels to the individuals, to the people who become and create the stumbling blocks and traps for the vulnerable and the humble and for children. As a result, Jesus calls us to do a little bit of self-examination. He says that there's anything in us that is a snare to us that could become a trap for somebody else, we're to get rid of it. You know, because anybody in this community could be the lowly, could be the vulnerable, could be the person who's tripped up in their faith by the actions of somebody else in this community. You know, we're going to talk about that in the rest of Matthew 18, the ways that we can trip each other up and be a snare to one another. So he says, do some self-examination. If there's anything in you, get rid of it. And he gives us these very vivid pictures, right, of self-mutilation. He says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off, or your foot, chop it off, or your eye, pluck it out. And the reason he's talking about these particular parts of the body is not he's... He's not linking them to particular sins as much as he's trying to convey the, the value of these parts of us. You know, that's the reason he doesn't say, hey, cut this out of your life like you'd cut your hair or you'd trim your nails. You know, he's saying it's your hands and your feet and your eyes because these are essential and vital parts of the body that enable us to do what we do and go where we go. And when you lose them, they're gone. But he's conveying to us, look, you may think you have these central parts of your life, these essential and vital things in your life that you can't live without. But if it's causing you to be tripped up in the path of God, and if it could cause someone else to stumble, just get rid of it. No questions asked. If technology, the place of technology in your life is a trap for you, it leads you from the path of God, you get rid of it. You're inconvenienced, sure. You can't pull up the QR code menu at the restaurant anymore. Forget it. Forget it. You say, oh, but the future is going to be built on technology, Web 3.0. No one even knows what that is. Leave it behind. Who cares? Okay? I mean, Web 3.0 is just probably a more immersive sin experience. That's probably all it is. Get rid of it if it leads you from the path of God. You know, if you're in a workplace, you say, oh, it's my livelihood. But because of the nature of your job, it's just filling you with greed. It's causing you to stumble. It's causing your family to stumble. Get rid of it. Find a new workplace. 
If your coworkers, it's a toxic work environment and they're leading you from the path of God, God is going to provide another opportunity for you to make ends meet and pay your bills. Get rid of it. Chop it off. Set it aside. You say, I can't release that. You can release it, whether it's a friendship community, whether it's a dating relationship, whether it's alcohol or substances, whatever it is, if it's going to cause you to stumble or maybe a trap for someone else, he says, remove it. Because it's better to lack and to limp into eternal life than to strut without a handicap straight into the fires of hell. I want to take a moment and just validate and affirm the reality of hell. Because it's not my job as a pastor to read a passage like this and try to airbrush it and make it look, you know, real pretty. It's not my job as a pastor to be the press secretary for Jesus and put a spin on every one of his statements so it doesn't come off so harshly. It's my job as a pastor to be compelled to share with you the truth of what Jesus speaks. Hell is real, and it's an unpopular reality. I mean, if we took the majority vote of our society that shirks all accountability, everybody would say, we're voting hell out. But the majority vote, the opinions of people, do not dictate ultimate reality. Jesus dictates ultimate reality, and he means to leave us with images and pictures that are so striking they won't quickly leave our imagination. He wants to lead our souls to a place of solemn quiet and reflection. The severity of the punishment fits the severity of the crime. The weight of judgment fits the weight of value in the conversation. And in this case, the lowly, vulnerable, and children have unbelievable worth to their Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says in the verses following 10 and 11 when he says, so do not despise these little ones. Don't scorn them. Don't set them aside. Don't ignore them. Don't think less of them. Don't let them be an invisible population in our county. That's not just for the parents of children in this community. That's for those who are single. That's for those who are struggling to have children. That's for those who've raised grown children. It's for every single one of us. Don't devalue. Don't turn aside. Don't ignore the reality of these lowly ones, these humble ones. The common sentiment then in the ancient world and now might be, what value do they have? What contribution are they bringing? Why should I care about someone else's kids or about the lowly? But Jesus claims that they have heavenly attendants who are always beholding the face of our Father in heaven. Now, however you want to understand it, that is a loaded verse about guardian angels. I don't know how that fits into your conception of the heavenly realms, but it's very similar to the sentiment that Jesus conveyed before, that to welcome a child, a little one, is to welcome his very presence. These little ones have unfettered access to the presence of God. And this just proves something that we see all throughout the scriptures, that God has elected, it's God's decision, he made a choice that he would manifest himself particularly in the lowly, in the humble. God has manifested himself in the lowly. And it's an unexpected place for us to look. It's sort of like the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He was hiding in a cave and God said, I'm going to send my presence before you. And as Elijah was in the cave, he heard this great wind that actually tore the mountain apart. That's how strong the wind was and the boulders are falling. But it says in the word of God that God wasn't in the wind. 
And then there was an earthquake that actually shook the foundations of the mountain, but it says specifically that God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire outside the entrance to the cave, and it says God wasn't in the fire. But then there was a whisper, and Elijah knew in that moment that was God, and he covered his face with a cloak, and he went to the mouth of the cave to enter into the presence of God. God's presence concentrated in an unlikely place. And in this world, a lot of people are looking for God in the high places, the influential places, the political realms. That's where they're focused. And God says, I'm among the lowly. I'm among the humble. When you welcome in a child, you've welcomed in my very presence. And people say all sorts of things about when they feel the presence of God. You know, hey, I was in worship and in this moment of ecstasy and I just felt like I was surrounded with the presence of God. Amen. Great. You know, and I was studying the Word of God, and I was understanding this complicated bit of theology, and that spiritual insight, it came through, and I felt the presence of God. Well, amen. But who's saying, I felt the presence of God, I encountered God when I was serving the humble? When I was lowering myself and putting myself side by side with the lowly. Jesus says that's where his presence is concentrated. He says, I'm there and I'm headed in that direction. Jesus finishes by telling this story uh, that conveys the heart of our Heavenly Father, this shepherd who searches for the lost sheep. And it's very simple. There's a hundred sheep and the shepherd sees that one of them has wandered away. So he leaves the 99 in the hills and he ventures out into the countryside. He ventures into the valley, the place where that sheep is going to be vulnerable and susceptible to abuse. And when that shepherd finds the sheep and takes it back, he says he has more joy. He's more gratified. He is happier over that one sheep who's been brought home than the 99 who never left the security of it. And thus we hear the heart of God in plain terms. Verse 14, Jesus makes it clear as day. Our Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. For how weighty this passage is in terms of its judgment, these striking pictures that stick in our imagination. I mean, we have to be left with the understanding that God's heart is inclined. He's desiring salvation and mercy most of all. And when you think about his harshest words of condemnation, they go toward those who are standing in the way of others experiencing that great salvation and mercy. But this passage isn't just about God, it's about us. We are instruments in the hands of God to enact the stories that we're reading. And when I think of the branches community, when I think about Christians in general and our identity, I think of this word that that we are seekers. We're not just seekers during one part of our life. Sure, that's true. We start out our faith journey seeking God. But once we've found him, we remain seekers because then we become seekers of those who are far from God. I want us to imagine ourselves in, in that term. Like we are, we are always seekers. I want branches to be a community of seekers that, you know, if you're a seeker seeking out the path of God, trying to discover who Jesus is, you belong here. And this is a place where I believe in this fellowship, you're going to experience who God is. You're going to know the heart of your father in heaven. But if you found God, you don't stop seeking, you don't stop moving, you don't stop pursuing because now we are released to pursue those who have wandered far from him. 
When we make that decision that that's who we're going to be, both as individuals and as a church, I want you to know that that comes with value decisions. That comes with ministry philosophy decisions. That comes with budget and money decisions. That comes with programming decisions. You know, when you say, I'm going to incline my life to reach those who are far from God, who aren't part of the sheltered 99 who are safe at home, that's going to change the way you spend your money. That's going to change the way that you calendar out your time. And I'll say it changes us as a church body. You know, every minute that I spend serving something like the organization that we help create, Serve City, that's to be this collaborative of churches, building bridges of service to our neighbors to make Jesus known among those who are far from him outside the church fellowships. Every minute that I give to helping build that organization is a minute I'm not giving to serve the interests of this community. I mean, that's the facts of the matter. But that's how you incline yourself if you're oriented in the way of the heart of the Father. You're okay with that. You, you and I agree that that's what we should be doing because I really believe, I have this conviction that there's so many fellowships, so many faith communities, they've oriented all their energy and focus around the 99. Is it our purpose, and everybody agrees on it, is it just to make the accommodations more plush for those who are already home? <laughs> you know, it's to make us more comfortable. It's for us to have a better and better experience. And they're just building up a fortress for the 99 in the hillside. And they're digging the moat around it and putting more bricks on the ramparts all the time. But God calls us beyond the walls, out of the hills, into the wilderness, into the valleys to find the vulnerable. The shepherd in this parable, the good shepherd, Jesus, he leaves the 99. He says, they're good. They're safe. And he goes out into the country in search of the lost. And he's happier in finding the one than in celebrating the already gathered multitudes. So I have a couple general applications for us as branches in light of this passage. For one, we have to agree together that we are going to protect the vulnerable among us. That has to be a community-wide commitment on the part of every single one of us together. We're going to protect the humble, the lowly, children and youth. We're going to protect the vulnerable among us. I hope to God that there is no threat within this community. And I pray that what I'm about to share with you has no application with anyone here. But if you are someone who is working to prey upon the vulnerable, let me tell you, come clean and face the earthly consequences or face the wrath and judgment of God. Because all of us are going to stand to protect the vulnerable here. And unfortunately, abusers and manipulators in this world, they know where to go. They know to go to the elderly. They know to go to the foster youth system. They know to go to trusted places. They know to go to faith communities. And none of us can stand for it anymore. And none of us is going to allow even a hint of anything in our life to be a stumbling block for anybody else. Let's do the self-examination too. Lord, search my heart that there's no trap in me. There's nothing to make anybody who's vulnerable around me stumble. Because we've got to agree together, Branches is not going to be that church, that one church and that one person's story about how they left the path of God because they got tripped up, because they got trapped by something here. This is going to be the community that brings the mountains down and fills in the valleys and makes straight paths to the, the Lord, to God again. 
And more than that, just being a place that protects the vulnerable, we've got to orient ourselves beyond our own community. We've got to go seek out the wanderers, the lost, and those who have gone astray. We have to agree together that at times we're going to go on less because we're going to sacrifice more for them. And, and that's how a lot of our ministry partners are oriented. That's where a lot of the work is going. Like, we're agreeing together in our personal lives and as a church community. We're, gonna, we're not going to prioritize us. We're going to prioritize someone else for the sake of the gospel. I mean, that's certainly the value decision we have to make if we're going to step in and make a meaningful impact alongside something like Foster the City. And yet Jesus says, that's where I am. Whoever welcomes in one of these little children welcomes in me. They ought not to be thought little of. They ought to be sought after. They ought to be the source of our greatest joy, our most happiness when they're reunited with their father in heaven. You know, I think what holds us back is we all feel the burden of service. We all feel the weight of responsibility with any of our ministry partners, but certainly when you hear about something like foster the city, like what is that going to cost me? And, and, you, and you hold back because you sense that feeling of carrying a cross which Jesus said is the mark of a disciple, and that weight of that burden, it, it holds us back. But I think we go, and I think we do the work of Jesus when that unwillingness to go, that unwillingness to follow, is exceeded by the power and impression of the Holy Spirit that leads us to the point where we're unwilling, just like our Father in heaven, to let anyone perish apart from life. We become unwilling to let anyone perish apart from our Father in heaven. We will go and we'll do the work of Jesus when that unwillingness to go is exceeded by that unwillingness to let anyone else perish apart from life, apart from our Heavenly Father. So I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to stir up that motivation within myself, that unwillingness to tolerate it any longer so that it overrides any feelings of reticence that I have. And I'm going to ask that you join me in, in prayers for the same things. Let's, let's pray together and ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to walk in the ways of Christ, to take up the heart of our Heavenly Father. And Father in Heaven, I, I thank you. We acknowledge you. We acknowledge the heart that you have, that you're not willing that any little one would perish apart from you. You're inclined toward them. And Jesus, I thank you for your example as the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out the one. And Holy Spirit, would you fill us with that sense of responsibility and passion to take up the heart of our Father in heaven. Lord, would we all feel that desire to protect the vulnerable here in this community that that we wouldn't settle for the status quo. We'd say, no way, I'm not going to let there be a snare or a stumbling block in my life, in my family. That we'd be willing to go to great lengths to remove sin and, and the traps of this world from our lives so that we could be those clear paths to you, our Father in heaven. Lord, would the vulnerable be protected here? Would no one be lost from the path? And would we bring many home to your kingdom? 
Lord, would that reticence, that hesitation, that unwillingness to go, would it be exceeded by that unwillingness to let anyone perish apart from you, where we, we love so much, we care so much, we're compelled. Jesus, you are driven by so many convictions, by the will of your Father in heaven. Would we be driven by those same convictions, by the will of our Father in heaven? Holy Spirit, would you minister to those who are, are wondering, could I do it? Do I have the capacity? God, in ourselves, we admit we don't. We are weak in ourselves, but yet the Spirit of God, your Spirit, makes us willing and able. And the fruit of all that labor is joy, is life. So Holy Spirit, I pray you just continue to minister to us. That as individuals, as, a, as an expression of your body together as branches, Lord, that we would be those who put the priority on the ones. Who cares about celebrating bigger and bigger numbers? Who cares about being a mega church? All the accommodations, all the extras. Lord, would we be a community that celebrates those who are far from you coming home? being reconciled to you, the ones, would that bring us more joy than anything? Let that be our collective joy because it's your joy. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.